So I'm a big fan of Disney and Pixar films. I expect most of us here would be. What are your favourites, I wonder? Maybe you can just whisper to the person next to you. Oh, I like this one. I um, wonder what your favourites are. Favourite Pixar? Favourite Disney? The little dinosaur said no one ever. Um, <laughs> I like the cartoon Aladdin from a million years ago. Um, I like the live-action Jungle Book. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and I'm a big fan of WALL-E as well. Any other WALL-E fans here? Eva. <laughs> Every time I think of you, I think Eva. Um, uh, there are problems with particularly the Disney films and ye olde Disney films, right? Like the predictable stories about the female characters for much of the company's history. There's a great bit in Ralph Breaks the Internet. Have you seen that one where they get all the Disney princesses together and Glitch Girl meets them, Vanellope uh, or whatever her name is, Vanellope, uh, um, and they go, they're asking her, oh, what kind of princess are you? Do you have magic hair, magic hands? Do animals talk to you? Were you poisoned? Were you cursed? Were you kidnapped? Were you enslaved? And she goes, are you guys okay? Do I... <laughs> Do I need to call the police or something? Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I have to assume that if none of those things are true, you made a deal with an underwater sea witch where she took your voice in exchange for human legs. Good Lord, who would do that? <laughs> and later on, they advise her to sing about her dreams. And if she struggles with that, then find some, um, what is it, like meaningful water or something? And sing it important water. Sing into some important water, and that will help her sing about her, <laughs> her dreams. Um, but another issue in, um, in the Disney sort of stories is that the, the story often has some version of you need to find the real you and the real you is almost always completely separate from your parents, from your family, from your location, from your community. You have to rebel against that and go bravely out to be you. You be you and when you are you and learn to be the real you then you'll be really happy and they'll still probably be a prince as well. Um, something along those lines, break free from all constraints of family, history, upbringing, culture, community. True love, true happiness is found in self-determination and independence. It's a very modernist, western, uh, individualistic vision that then gets transported back into medieval Scotland or, um, or wherever else. An existentialist sort of ideal that individual humans find identity, meaning and happiness in a sort of a solitary uh, boldness. But is that, is that really the whole story? Is that really the way life really actually works? That's where uh, a more recent film, Moana, is quite different. I don't know if there are Moana fans here. Uh, but Moana's interesting because although she is a free spirit, and she's very strong, and she does uh, rebel, you could say, against her community early in the film. The moral to the story is not, be like Moana, be yourself, find yourself, no, you don't need nobody else, go out there and be you. But rather, you know, towards the climax of the film, she sings, I know everybody on this island, they seem so happy on this island, everything is, oh sorry, this is early on, right, she says, I know everybody on this island, they're happy, everything's by design, uh, but, but, I can't play along. What's wrong with me? I need something more. But towards the end of the film, this is the bit I should be quoting. She says, here we go, she, she ponders who she is and she says, there is a quiet voice inside you and when that voice starts to whisper, Moana, this, her grandma says, isn't it? You've come so far, Moana, listen, do you know who you are? Who am I, she says. 
I'm a girl who loves my island. I'm the girl who loves the sea. It calls me. I'm the daughter of the village chief. We're descended from voyagers who found their way across the world, they call me. I've delivered us to where we are. I've journeyed farther. I'm everything I've learned and more. Still it calls me. And the call isn't out there at all. It's inside me. It's like the tide, always falling and rising. I'll carry you here in my heart and you'll remind me that come what may, I know the way. I am Moana. The moral of the story for Moana is, is not totally break free and make your own future, cut off the past entirely and pave your own way, but actually she discovers new resources within her own history, her community's history, her tribe's traditions. They are the people of the island and the voyages of the sea. It's not individualism alone that ends up empowering her, but connection to a larger community, a larger history, a belonging. And I think that's a lot more right, actually. There is sometimes we need to be brave, we need to step out, we need to question traditions, to hunger to be ourselves, yes. And yet, when we really find ourselves, when we really figure out who we are, there's a big sense to which we do that in community, with other people, with the people we've come from, the people we're with, the people we will journey forward with, those we love, those we serve, those who teach us, those who are long dead, those who go before us and look ahead to those who come after us. Belonging is a really vital part of life. And you're not being helped in life if you're just being told, hey, just go off on your own. And that's where happiness is found. It doesn't really help you in real life. Real life is figuring out who, I, who am I in community? Where do I fit in community? How do I belong? Knowing where we are accepted and welcomed. Know where we fit. Know the part we play. And feeling, therefore, like we don't belong. A few of us have already talked about that tonight, haven't we? Loneliness. Rejection. Abandonment, not knowing where we fit, and therefore not really knowing who we are. We're exploring this tonight then. A famous teaching story from Jesus, the parable of the prodigal son, brings up some of these themes for us. It doesn't have every answer, but it has some great things to say, and I want to look with you tonight. Firstly, in the lead-up to this story, we see that this is actually part of a few stories Jesus tells about God finding things that are lost. God finding things that are lost. This is sort of the lead up. It begins at the very beginning of Luke chapter 15, where the context is actually a controversy about Jesus himself. At the start of Luke 15, maybe if you have it on your phone or on paper, you can see there, tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So people who were the undesirables were gathering around Jesus, coming to his sort of gathering, right? But Pharisees and teachers of the law, these are more religious types, look in the door, you see, and they see who's in the room. Oh, no, really? And they say, this man, Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. They're appalled and shocked and scandalised by Jesus welcoming and showing belonging to the wrong type of people. That's the context of these stories. These are religious disapprovers deciding who does and who doesn't belong. Disapproving of Jesus because he welcomes those whom they consider rejected and unworthy. 
And it's in that moment of scandal that Jesus tells three stories of a lost coin, a lost sheep, and then the lost sons. All three parables have some things in common. There's something lost, sheep, coin, son. So, for example, 15 and verse 4, we read about, uh, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Or in verse 8, suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. And, of course, at the end of the story of the son, this son of mine, should I just get rid of this? It seems to be quite noisy. It's all right? It's okay? Um, uh, the, the son was lost and now is found. Yeah, so lost something is the first thing in common. Secondly is a costly search. So uh, verse 4 again, the, uh, the, the sheep that is lost, and that shepherd leaves the 99 in open country, verse 4, and goes after the lost sheep until he finds it. And similarly, the woman with the lost coin, she lights a lamp, verse 8, sweeps the house, searches carefully until she finds it. And then at the end of at least the story, of the, I mean, it's a longer story, the last one, isn't it? But the father running to greet the son upon his return. So something lost, costly search, and then great rejoicing. 15 verse 5, when the shepherd finds the lost sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home and calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. And verse 9, and when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. Rejoicing. And of course, as we saw in that last story, the um, slaughter the fattened calf, let's have a party, put a robe on him, put a ring on him, put sandals on him. He's back. Rejoice, yeah? Lost thing, costly search, great rejoicing. And the moral to the story for all of them, well, 15 verse 7, what's the moral to the story of the parable of the lost sheep? I tell you, in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over uh, one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Or again in verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's how God and his angels respond when people who seem especially unworthy, especially sinful, especially in need of repentance, turn back to God. When you look in and see that going on, you rejoice. God rejoices. And so what's Jesus saying by telling those stories to the people looking in the door, scandalised? tut-tutting, he says, you know what? You godly people who don't need to repent, you righteous ones, you godly ones who don't need to repent, who are scandalised for God, you know what? You don't share the heart of God. You don't share the attitude of God. By being scandalised rather than thrilled at sinners coming to hear about God's mercy in Jesus, <laughs> ironically, you're the ones who need to repent. There's slight differences in each of the stories. The first story, the lost sheep, has a particular emphasis on this willingness to leave the found 99 to go after the lost. There's a priority there, isn't there? There's a risk there. There's a, a valuing of a precious lost one. It's not like the shepherd goes, well, look, let's weigh up our losses here. It's only one, 99% HD. It's pretty good. <laughs> We're on the bell curve, it's fine. Um, that, but, but actually, he goes, no, no. The one, I love the one, yeah? The lost coin, I think, especially emphasises this costly, diligent search, lighting the lamp and hunting under everything. Like when you become a kid, if God blesses you with family and kids, then you'll begin to hate people who create toys like Lego with tiny little black plastic bits that are desperately precious, like Batman's little spanner or something that's black. 
Your kid knows Batman has a black spanner, and your kid knows that he doesn't have the black spanner, and it's a black, tiny plastic thing that could be anywhere in your whole house. Lego. <laughs> um, but searching like that, that beleaguered parent trying to find Batman's black spanner. Um, searching diligently, carefully, earnest, passionate. Yeah. But the moral of the story, the point that's emphasised, and the challenge to the people looking in the door that Jesus is responding to. They're looking in the door, 15 verses 1 and 2, and saying, oh my goodness, this one, this Jesus, he's, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. <gasps> well, I'll tell you the truth, Jesus says, there's angels in heaven rejoice even more than the shepherd finding his lost sheep. They're looking in the door, oh, this man is welcoming sinners and eating with them. And Jesus says, hey, look, this, this woman, I tell you similarly, there's rejoicing in heaven with the angels when a sinner repents. They are not sharing the mind of God. They, in their godliness, so-called, are being ungodly. They don't have the heart of God. God rejoices, God delights, God searches, God focuses on seeking and saving what is lost and bringing them home. That there's even more rejoicing when he can seek and save one who is even further lost. Rather than it being, oh, I guess we can stretch to just squeeze you in and let's not mention it though, okay? Because who knows what will happen then. <laughs> but it's instead, it's, this is the best thing. God doesn't look at a wretched, dirty, sinful, spoiled, ruined, corrupted, perverted sinner and say, yuck. Or you don't belong around here. Or you're a lost cause. But rather, God says, it's a great thing you see out front of the, um, the Hillsong building, hey, on the way to the outlet, welcome home. It's a great slogan to have, isn't it? Imagine that, thinking about going to a church, feeling like there might be a God out there, and not knowing if you're, you belong because of where you've been and what you've done and what's been done to you. And imagine seeing a sign like that, huh? Well, they've got that right, haven't they? Welcome home. Come home, you're forgiven. You're one of us. Come in here. It's for you. That's the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just the risk of leaving the 99, not just the hard work of the search. God did even more than a hard search. God sent his own son to die for the sins of the world. Not just to teach wise teachings like this, but to give his life as a ransom for the forgiveness of a sinful world. So that any person at all can be forgiven their guilt and shame and debt. Fully pardoned, fully welcomed, fully one of us. That's a profound, wonderful thing. And that's the kind of thing Hannah was talking about, something you dwell upon and maybe even write out in a journal. It's a good, good discipline, isn't it? To sing about, pray through. Doesn't fix every issue about feeling lonely in a group. Doesn't fix every issue. But gosh, it does help a deep thing. And some of you know that this year, don't you? You know what it's like to feel really mucked up and lonely this year, but to know that God loves you. Well, then having looked at that to lead up a couple of the other stories, let's now spend most of our time with the parable of the prodigal son. Firstly, then, his rejection. 
Verse 11. Jesus says there was a man with two sons. 15 verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So his father divided his property between them. Now it is two sons, isn't it? We, I mean, we saw that acted before us. Two sons. And Jesus says here, the father with two sons. That's important. We'll come back to that. Uh, because it's not just a story about the lost one. Because remember, who's Jesus talking about this story? Why is he telling this story? He's not just telling the story because he's got some lost ones in the room and saying, hey, listen, guys, I know you feel like you don't belong, but let me tell you a story about a lost son. Now, remember, he's telling this story because there are others looking in saying, these lost ones don't belong. Yeah? So remember that. There's, there's two sons. We'll come back to that, though. What's the request? What's the rejection that the son says? Well, it's verse 12. He says, um, uh, the younger one says to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, you get what that's saying, right? It's saying, why aren't you dead already, Dad? I, I would rather your stuff than you, Dad. That's what he's saying, isn't it? I want, the, I want to cash out of this family, is what he's saying. I want to take my shares while the going's good. That's, it's a heavy thing to say, isn't it? Wow. Father, I wish you were dead. I just want your stuff. And then a little while after that, he takes the wealth and goes off to live the wild life, the good life. Verse 13. Gets together all he has, sets off to a distant country and squanders his wealth in wild living. That's where we get the prodigal son from. Prodigal living, extravagant, wasteful, reckless living. Yeah? The tragedy is he's a fool to do that. To reject his father, who we discover is such, a, such an awesome dad. And then to think that's the good life. He's a fool. And this is like where the, the belongingness, loneliness stuff starts to come into play really, doesn't it? That he's a fool because he thinks, uh, and we can be like this, you and I, that in our blindness, in our wickedness, in our foolishness, we think riches are more important than relationship. It's such an easy, stupid thing that we humans, in our, in, our, in our wickedness, we tumble into it. I think riches are what makes life the good life, rather than relationship. Pleasure over a relationship. Uh, reputation or entertainment or convenience or success, we fixate on and go, that's what I want. I wish you were dead. I don't care about you. I just want your stuff so I can pursue pleasure, fame, convenience, success, experience, whatever it is. It's all about me. I'm going to get what's good for me. Wretchedly, we can, we can be fools just like this prodigal son. Maybe you have, but maybe you still are. Maybe you have been. You know what it is to go this way, to cut off those who love you, cut off where you belong, and just run after whatever it is. Ultimately, the lie is it's not the good life anyway, is it? It's a lie to think, I'll cut off everybody, get the stuff to do the thing, and then I'll be great. It's a lie. It's not as if Christians are kind of missing out on this awesome, better life. But, oh, well, God's there, and so I've got to do the, the not as good bit. It's, it's not even the good life. God made the world. God made you. God knows the way to live that's good. 
It's a shadow life, really. And we chase after things and we pour into things and, and then get totally miserable. There's a great bit like that, kind of focusing especially on careers, and this might be a helpful little bit of um, perspective for you in the midst of exam week, I don't know, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Uh, it's a great bleak old book, Ecclesiastes, but wise in its bleakness. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 7. I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother, there was no end to his toil, and yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. So this is one who doesn't end up with the pigs and the pods. He ends up on the top. He owns the pig farm, and yet still he's not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is miserable, a meaningless business. Better a little with somebody than everything all alone. But this parable isn't just about uh, human decisions. It's not just a moral to the story, don't be dumb like the prodigal son. Remember, this is a story where Jesus is teaching something about the heart of God. And if God is the father in the story, then the younger son well, he shows us what like the Pharisees and the, ta uh, the tax collectors and the sinners are like, what humans are like in our sin, what we are like with God. And so Romans chapter 1 can speak about God as the creator, the powerful, divine creator, the wise one who made it all and gave you all that you are and all that you have that's good. And that we as human beings, rather than thanking God, like Hannah's thanking journal and, and recognising God and his kindness to us, we, in our thanklessness, turn away from God, take all that we have and all that we are, either worship ourselves or make up a God that suits us. And in our unrepentant hearts, in our unworshipful, un we don't glorify God, give thanks to him. We exchange the truth of God for a lie, Romans 1 says. Well, Jeremiah chapter 2, describing the people of Israel, says, Oh, these people have rejected me, the Lord, the streams of living water, and have turned and dug a cistern of water for themselves that doesn't even really hold any water, doesn't ever satisfy. More of a septic tank than living water. We reject the life-giving one for stuff that doesn't last, doesn't endure, doesn't give true meaning, true belonging, true life. And he hits rock bottom. Back in Luke 15, he's spent it all. That's the prodigal idea. Prodigal, just it's a word we don't use in English anymore. Wasteful, extravagant. And then some terrible luck. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. He's exposed, he's vulnerable, he's ruined. Party's over. Where are all the mates now? All the so-called friends have gone. They were there when the money was flowing and the drinks were plenty, but now they're gone. He's all alone. He's washed up. He's desperate, verse 15. He went and hired himself out. This is a, a son of a wealthy, generous man, and he's now hiring himself out wherever he can. Hiring himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. 
and he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. And I looked this up in the pods. We were actually chatting about this in staff meeting, and, and someone said, oh, I wonder what those pods... Every time I read that, it's not like Mars bar pods, is it? So what is it? What are the pods? Um, carob pods. So if you ever had carob chocolate, you know just how desperate this guy is now. Like, this, is, this, is, this is serious. <laughs> carob pods. He wants to eat pig food. He's jealous of pigs. He's in such a wretched situation. He's hit rock bottom. Now, it's not as if everybody hits a rock bottom like that always. A lot of people do. But some manage to, to steer clear of it, to, to maybe even live for themselves and reject God, but maintain things at a manageable level. <laughs> well, some people yo-yo, but never yo too low. Um, but there is a strange kind of mercy, actually. When you speak to some people who have really hit the bottom and then the, falls fall, wall, or the floor's fallen out of them, they fall even further, they often testify to the fact in a weird way that is the wake-up call they needed. Like this. He comes to his senses, verse 17. Then he reaches this point and realises how far wrong he's gone. But you can have that realisation without a train crash like this. And again, remember, this is, this is a, a parable about the mind of the heart of God. It's not just, you know, don't do drugs, kids. Um, don't party too hard. You know, do your barefoot investor and have your, your whatever it is, your backup account or whatever it is. Um, not everything in splurge. Um, it's a parable about, not just about lifestyle and budgeting, but about relationship with God. And Jesus is speaking to what the Bible describes as a whole world that's a runaway world, a prodigal world. Spiritually, that is. Humans are not in living relationship with God, our creator. Spiritually, then, we're all eating carob pig chocolate. We're, we're poor, spiritually, when it comes to God, by nature. Now, even here, not every person has to have some moment of spiritual crisis. You know, like a little bit of the history of Christianity, at least in the kind of Western world, has been shaped a lot by the experiences of Augustine um, and Martin Luther at different times in church history who had very powerful conversion events. And some of us do have those very powerful conversion events like Martin Luther his was rock bottom in a tower. <laughs> but uh, wherever it is, it's, it's, it's a sudden, oh my goodness, I'm ruined before God, God have mercy. We may not all have them in quite as dramatic a way. I mean, it was like that for me, actually. I, I, I did run away from my family quite literally and was well and truly running away from God and a lot went wrong in my teenage years. And then, by God's grace, I came to my senses. And yet, not for all of us. But still spiritually, all of us are on our own. We've sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that none of us can please God in our sinful nature, that we are by, by nature are slaves to, to sin and to death, children of, of the wrath of God, uh, not able to justify ourselves, earn our way to heaven, knock on the pearly gates. All of us need to realise that, at least with our... Our minds, even if we don't go on a roller coaster of disaster. Have you realised it? Have you really reckoned with 
where you stand with God. Well, he does. He comes to his senses. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll set out, go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. Doesn't even know what will happen. And so he's aiming low. <laughs> Anything is better than this. I know my father's good. I know my father's place is a good place. I'll go back and I'll beg. I'll ask for whatever. I don't even dare to ask for much. Whatever. This isn't real life. <laughs> this isn't the good life. I'm alone and I'm ruined. And this path led to loneliness, not belonging. Led to ruin, not life. And you know what? Even on a human level, even just looking at this as a story about people, uh, it is true, right, that... Uh, Repentance, apology, humility fixes relationships and so secures belonging. Even if you can't dare to hope things will be back to the way they used to be with that old friend or that relative, even if you don't have any reason to expect friendship and reconciliation with that psycho neighbour, or that difficult classmate. Anything is better than just enmity, bitter estrangement, alienation. And, and if I set myself on a pattern of just putting out the echidna spikes and just pushing and rejecting and denying and, and standing my ground, that's all I got. Yeah, I'll be protected inside the spikes and I'll be all alone. Are there relationships even where your stubbornness your anger, or your hatred, or your, or even maybe your hurt, is blocking you from seeking some kind of peace. Some kind of peace. Even if it's not back to the way things were. Some kind of end of the war. I'm not saying that we need to pretend that bad things don't happen. I'm not saying we need to say that some people just can't be trusted. I'm, I'm not... Those things, it's still important to, to be wise and careful in broken relationships and untrustworthy people. I mean, another kind of example I see from time to time, and look, maybe this is, this is your, your person like this, but someone who, who realises they need healthy boundaries, often when you've been hurt, you, you, you know, the spikes are out, um, uh, but sometimes people get to a point where they say, you know what, if anyone in my life is in any way toxic, cut them off. If anyone in my life is in any way problematic, cancelled. If anyone in my life is in any way too asky, too demanding, I push them away. It's not good for me. I don't need that kind of negativity in my life right now, that kind of thing. Now, again, there's something good in that. There's something healthy in learning boundaries, and especially if you're a person not good at saying no, then it it can be helpful to figure out there is such a thing as a frenemy who's not really in for your good at all but uses you and sucks the life out of you. Yes, yes, yes. There are abusive relationships. Yes, yes, yes. And as well as that, be on the lookout for that. Have the spikes out to some extent for that. <laughs> but actually all the other relationships in life, there can still be challenges. 
there can still be conflicts, disappointments, hurts, disagreements. And figuring out how we can welcome forgiveness and offer forgiveness, seek reconciliation, uh, de-escalate conflict, say I'm sorry, say that's okay, learn peaceful coexistence, civil disagreement, tolerance and neighbourliness, even in the tricky relationships. We've got to learn that as well, don't we? And that's part of how we find belonging in a world where we're all messed up, screwed up, sinful, selfish, hurt, foolish, to find belonging in churches where they should be welcoming, but sometimes they're not as welcoming as they should be. You know, things like that is figuring out this stuff. But again, this isn't just about human relationships, is it? It's about God and humans. It's a, it's a metaphor. And so the question is not just, have you come to your senses, who, which human do you need to say, oh, I'm sorry to? But it's also saying, have you come to your senses? Have you ever said sorry to God, ever? Not, I believe in you now, God, lucky you. Not, oh, God, I go to church and I pray and I really mean it when I worship you. I'm not saying that. I'm not even saying, oh, that was bad, I guess I shouldn't have done it, I guess. No, 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 I'm not saying that. But actually... Lord, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son or daughter. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have you ever said that to God? Begged for God's mercy and his grace. Said, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Have you ever said that? Where are you at with God? If you thought about how you're living, how you're thinking, where your heart is, where your dead is with God, have you come to your senses? Because when you do, you'll find something way more than just being welcomed back as a slave or a hired hand. Because in this story Jesus tells, we see the kiss of God. <laughs> I love the acting with the the uh, COVID-safe kiss of elbow. But when we go back to the father, he's not inside going over some papers and signing some, stamping some things or whatever. He's looking. Isn't that beautiful? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. <laughs> so his dad's already looking for him. Maybe today he'll come back. Any news? Any news from Shay? I don't know what the son was called. He doesn't have a name. Let's call him Shay. Any news from Shay? <laughs> He's looking for him. And when he sees him coming, he doesn't just stand there and smile and nod wisely like a wise, wealthy man might, especially in a, this kind of culture. Perhaps it's not particularly appropriate. Here we instead get this wealthy father run <laughs> for his kid, his youngest kid, who disgraced him. Incredible. <laughs> He's looking for him. And as soon as he sees him, it's just, you know, all sense of dignity or reserve is gone and the, the coat's off and he's sprinting off <laughs> to greet his son. 
And it almost seems like the father isn't really listening. Do you get that kind of feeling in the way Jesus tells the story? The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you, and I'm no longer with you. He has a whole bit extra bit to the speech from earlier where he says, make me like one of your height, blah, blah, blah. But it said the father kind of cuts him off and he wasn't really listening, <laughs> wasn't really listening anyway. Um, and the father says in verse 22 to his servants, quick, quick, bring the robe, put it on him. Yeah, yeah, whatever, sinned against heaven, against you. Bring the robe, bring the head. Yeah, 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 I know where this height is. And they kill the fattened calf and get the robe on him and the sandals and the, come on. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate, verse 23, for this son of mine. He was dead and he's alive again. He was lost, he's found. More rejoicing in heaven, as Jesus had said in the other stories. Oh, the angels in heaven rejoice even more when one sinner repents. And wonderful joy and the delight, the reconciliation, the coming back together, the finding belonging, the father becoming more whole again as well. Because he is a bit of himself that had died and come back alive. That's why some people, a little bit clever, um, say this isn't the parable of the prodigal son, the extravagant son. No, this is the parable of the prodigal God, the extravagant God. Extravagant, not in loose living but in mercy. This, Jesus says, is what God's like. This, Jesus says, in the hearing of sinners who dare not look up to heaven, that's what God's like. This, Jesus says, to the, the ones looking in scandalised, how dare Jesus speak to tax collectors and sinners and wicked ones. This is what God's like, Jesus says. It's God's attitude to you. Any guilt, any shame, any failure, any sin, any corruption, just your insignificance, just insignificant old you, spoiled you. God's attitude to you is runs to grief.